0: So we were talking yesterday, I was talking yesterday about uh, change and our ambivalent, contradictory attitudes to change. If we didn't have change, we'd stagnate and die. We like to be or to feel that we are in control of change because we know change is happening all the time. Uh, But actually, of course, our control over change is very limited. And the more we try to control it, often the worse it gets. Things spin out of control. And the contemplative wisdom in all our spiritual families, of the human family, the contemplative wisdom uh, gives us something that we desperately need to remember today and to apply today, which is um, an understanding of how we find the centre, how we find the, f- the ever-fixed mark that Shakespeare was talking about, or that centre uh, that W. B. Yeats was talking about—the centre that we feel isn't holding anymore, and is is drowning the ceremony of innocence. Beautiful expression, whatever it means. But maybe the profession yesterday. Was an example of that, or a Eucharist is an example of that. It's a ceremony of innocence. It's the ability to, to play, the ability to step outside of time is money, uh, to step outside of five year plans for reorganizing your company. Um, and the, the, the opportunity to step into a different kind of time in which we can feel both stable, stabilized, and at the same time that we are growing. When Don Paul took his simple vows yesterday, two of the vows he, or the three vows he took, were obedience, from the rule of St. Benedict, the first word of the rule is listen and obedience is always understood, not just doing what you're told, which is a very small part of it, in fact, though not unimportant. Uh, And really, it means a deep listening, a deep uh, attunement of your mind and heart and feelings uh, to the word of God not only in the Bible or in the Scriptures, but the Word of God that is alive and active in all of our relationships, in all of our encounters and events, in all of our experiences. And um, that's why uh, St. Benedict says at one point that the monks have to be obedient to each other. There's a, a lateral, horizontal obedience as well as the vertical obedience of a hierarchy. So obedience is this deep listening. And that's, of course, we can only listen if we are silent. So the more silent we become, the more we listen to, not in the sense that we're going to get a call on our cell phone or a text message, but um, that we will be attuned to the action. So a word we'll come back to later today to the (coughs) action, alive and active. So, the letter to the Hebrews says about the word of God, something alive and active, a force, a reality, a presence, an intelligence. Uh, Of course, we personify this in all sorts of ways. We anthropologize it, we turn it, we give it a human, you know, psychological uh, profile. But the word of God itself is not something that we can fix into any image. OK, so that's obedience, and then, which comes from listening, or is listening. And then he also took a vow uh, to be stable, a vow of stability. Now, while he's a novice, he, he'll have to get permission if he wants to go into Florence or go out on a trip. Uh, But that's uh, a relatively, it's a good training actually, it's a good humble, humbling thing to do, to um, submit oneself to that kind of discipline. It's it's a free choice. He can walk out tomorrow if he likes. But uh, the, the real meaning of stability, which is helped by that kind of physical stability, certainly in the early stages, is the kind of stability that those of you who are married uh, are practicing, the stability within your families and the commitment, not so much even to a physical space, as to the significant relationships of our lives. And in that uh, stability, we find a centeredness and a um, harmony. Uh, he also took a vow of conversion of life. And when I gave the Dalai Lama once a 15-minute introduction to the Rule of Saint Benedict, when he was going to be talking to a group of Benedictine monks, he picked up immediately on this with his very intuitive mind, and uh, he said, conversion, that's the Buddhist one <laughs> in particular. So conversion is a commitment to change. Conversatio morum, a conversion of the way of life. Not just your ideas, your opinions, but of your way of life. Uh, an inner change that, of course, leads to a change of lifestyle or change of behavior, a change of behaviour, a change of uh, perception. So here we have these, these three very spiritual truths, or spiritual laws, really, expressed in the vows that uh, the young monk uh, Paul talked yesterday. Uh, Obedience. How do we learn to listen, to be present, to be tuned in, to be aware? Well, the work of silence. How do we learn to be um, stable, centred, consistent with our meditation practice, with our commitments in life, with the things we want to do and know we should do, but uh, often find we are not very good at? How do we learn to be stable, to deepen that stability? Not rigidity, because the purpose of that stability is uh, are like roots going down into the ground, like these beautiful cypress trees all around us with deep roots holding those very thin, beautiful, pencil-like trees uh, in stability and able to weather storms. So how do, we, how do we then deepen that stability so as to be able to grow, put out our branches, and allow the birds of heaven, the cuckoos and the swallows, to come and settle in our branches. So what kind of change does meditation initiate? It changes us interiorly, first of all, although much uh, of the modern scientific research into The effects of meditation focus upon things that we can measure, your cholesterol, your sleeping patterns, the frequency of your panic attacks, uh, the rate of your recovery from addiction, your blood pressure, and so on and so on. These are things we can measure, and meditation seems to have a very definite effect here. Um, But the more interior. kinds of change are not so easy to measure. The fruits of meditation rather than just the benefits. So the fruits of the spirit, for example, that both St. Paul and the Dharmapada describe almost in the same words. uh, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, fidelity, gentleness, and self-control. And St. Paul then adds, there is no law dealing with such things as these. What he's referring to is that this experience of spiritual change, transformation, bearing fruit spiritually, uh, gives us a liberty of spirit that sets us above the law. And we'll see in, I hope, uh, later, this is what other great wisdom traditions tell us as well. So uh, that's what he means, I think, that we're no longer subject to the rather obsessive compulsive rules and regulations by which we hope externally to bring about the kind of change we want or to prevent change. Very often, religious rules and regulations are not designed to change us, but to prevent change, to give us the illusion of, uh, of being in total control of the situation so that nothing will change. But I think there's, a, there's another way we could, we could interpret that phrase, uh, that the law has nothing to do with these, and that is you can't measure them. You just can't really put a measure on them. Anyway, so meditation changes us interiorly, the way we see, the way we see. Not so much what we see, but the way we see things. This is actually how Ian McGilchrist describes the way the, uh, describes the difference between the two hemispheres of the brain. It's more, not so much what do they do, but how do they do the things that they do. How do they determine our kind of attention? So how do we respond to the external world of events because of the change that is taking place immeasurably, invisibly within us? And this happens, I think, uh, as and because we develop a habit of meditation, a regular habit. Sometimes people don't like being reminded all the time to meditate twice a day. Uh, And of course, when we teach children to meditate, we don't tell them that. And we discover that they do meditate. Sometimes I wonder whether we should not tell people to meditate twice a day. Then they would probably do it. But the difference between children and adults is that uh, children have a spontaneity and a quickness of perception that, for adults, becomes <coughs> overlaid with, uh, with our confusions, with our baggage and, you know, with our, with our problems. So it will be interesting to see, uh, maybe one day, how our cultural understanding of discipline Will change as we have been introduced to meditation very early in life. Because then there will become a point, and I think it is already coming, well maybe it comes for all of us at some point, where we recognize discipline is a good thing. I'd actually like to be able to be a bit more disciplined. Well, we feel that about how much, whether you have a second helping of pasta or the extra glass of wine. So we know there that discipline is a good thing. But um, there are many other aspects of our lives, including the spiritual. A young woman once said to me, after she had been meditating for a while, I'm so glad to have found a discipline. She was a very successful young businesswoman. I'm so glad to have found a discipline. So as John Main uh, taught me, uh, and meditation teaches us all, discipline is about freedom. The, The fruit of discipline is liberty of spirit. Because we are no longer controlled by our ego system of desires and fears, and our disobedience to ourselves. So, now, the opposite of discipline is not perhaps only uh, uh, being the slave of your desires, but um, another, another opposite of discipline would be being compelled to do something and you might be compelled to do something because of your fears, because of your upbringing, because of your sense of guilt, because of your religious uh, uh, framework of belief, or you might be compelled to do it simply by somebody else threatening you, uh, threatening you with disapproval, threatening you with expulsion, with excommunication, threatening you with any number of sanctions. So whether it's just licentiousness, doing what you like, when you like, or whether it's being compelled to do something from interior or external forces, that is not discipline. Discipline isn't simply a habit of behavior. Discipline is a freely chosen practice that produces an expansion of spirit beyond the fears and desires of the ego. And that's why developing a discipline of meditation is not a bad thing. It's both an external discipline, in the sense that you do it, whatever is happening. Now. We all live largely by, uh, in, in, in habits, in schedules. Monastery is a very good example, being on retreat is a good example. Um, we go to work, uh, we spend so much time eating, drinking, family, taking the children to school, whatever. So we have... We have probably most of our day is repetitive. But in between these repetitive things, there is a lot of change. You never know what's going to happen. I broke my glasses this morning. Didn't know that was going to happen. It cost me some time trying to fix it. So uh, change is always there. uh, And that's why we like routines and habits, because gives us the ability, in some way, to deal with change and contain it. Sometimes we're completely thrown off our routine. You have an accident on the way to work. Or you go to work and you're told you're fired. You know, this rather changes the day. But generally speaking, we we operate... uh, within our scheduled times. Uh, And that's where the habit of meditation is such a beautiful gift. Because there will come a point, which we may not be able to recognize or measure, where you you suddenly realize, this is now part of my life. It's as if you've acquired a taste for something that you didn't have before, or an understanding of it. Sometimes it works negatively. When I was a boy, I I gave up sugar in tea during Lent. And I hated the tea without sugar until Easter Sunday when I put sugar in my tea and tasted it and spat it out. It was so disgusting (laughs) ever since. So you you don't even know how these changes take place. But one day, you realize, this is now part of my life. Of course, something may happen, some change in my schedule, or the weather, or the world, that may make it impossible, but the exception would prove the rule. If I didn't meditate today, it would show me that I do meditate every day. And what does that show me about what has happened? What kind of deeper, subtle, Invisible change has taken place in me that allows this this experience, this discipline to continue to work in me and produce change at a level deeper than I can see. I can see what happens on the outside of my life. Somebody doesn't turn up for an appointment or I miss the plane or I do this or that. I can see what's happening. I see changes taking place in my plans or in whatever, in my body, in my health. But this, there, here is an agent of change, meditation, quietly simmering away, and, uh, and yet I can't see it as such. It's like if you notice over there in that direction, on the horizon, or oh, no, maybe it's there, I figure. Monte, Monte Arema, which is the largest mountain in Tuscany, or Italy, I figure. Anyway, it's a big mountain. <coughs> and it's a, it's a volcano, just to make you worried. <laughs> you may be the second Pompeii, you never know. Uh, people may come here. and 2,000 years' time and see this room full of people <laughs> covered, covered in lava. <laughs> They'll be trying to understand. Hopefully, the, the camera will have, won't have been destroyed We can see it. So, but Monte, Monte Aremo uh, is, is still an active volcano that hasn't erupted, I think, for a few thousand years, but it uh, produces uh, all the hot springs uh, in, this, uh, in this area. And you feel it. When you get close to it, you feel the heat. So, um, so meditation maybe works in that kind of way. It's a discipline, both external. You do it, whatever is happening, um, like eating or drinking. And it is internal. The internal, the interior discipline, is returning continuously to the same unchanging center of attention. So here we begin to see something quite curious, that here in a habit or regular discipline, returning to this unchanging center of attention, our mantra, we actually enter into the deepest transformation. Ironically, we're frightened of meditation as well as we are drawn to it because it changes us. Even though this change, the change it gives us, allows us to cope with change in life much better. So, as I said, we have ambivalent attitudes to change. It's a radical change that happens over time, through time, and with practice. And this doesn't mean that we become better at meditation. That's one of the things you have to get over and see through, is this idea that you are going to become a better meditator, or an expert meditator, or you're going to master this technique of meditation. Uh, we don't become better at it so much. We become more familiar with it. We have less resistance to it. We can feel the benefits it brings. We come to love it. And it's a wonderful thing when you come to love the basic disciplines of your life, when you love them. Um, So, it's not so much that we become better at it, but that we become more committed. Think of stability, stability that is the foundation for change, for growth. So it's faith, not willpower, that moves mountains that shifts the mountain of our ego. How we see the changes that meditation makes, makes happen depends on where we start from, what our original motivation is, and where we find meaning in our life. Many people today Actually, have never thought about meaning. We've become so externally motivated, achievement orientated, uh, pleasure orientated, distraction oriented that we never consider the meaning of our experience, the meaning of what we're doing. So, If that's where you're starting from, you may be a very successful and capable, functioning person, but if that's where you're starting from, then uh, the way you recognize the changes that are taking place in you will be very different. A religious person whose, whose motivation is to deepen their prayer, their relationship with God, a Christian, Become come into a deeper personal intimacy with Christ, will also change, and all change brings with it a certain disturbance. And for a religious person, they will find that their image of God is changing, or their understanding of Christ is changing. Those who have, you know, rejected the church because of all its faults and sinfulness, may even find that their idea, their image of the church is changing. And this, all of this can be frightening as well as energizing. The very word, God, begins to take on new meaning because of the experience that is unfolding within you. It becomes more related to interior events events, and less to external behavior, rules, or regulations, or ideas. So the god becomes uh, more of a balance between transcendence, what is always beyond us, and imminent, that which is closer to us than we are to ourselves. Paradox, not so much of God's identity, but a paradox of our way of experiencing and understanding the experience of God. So many people feel that they're losing their faith when they start to meditate. And they question the meaning uh, of everything that they have learnt from childhood, quite disturbing. And some people are quick enough, or a lot of people maybe, are quick enough to recognise, even though they don't meditate themselves, but they've made up their mind about meditation, contemplative prayer, that it is dangerous or they find it reasons for rejecting it, usually very irrational reasons for rejecting it because they know it is very subversive. Very subversive. It changes or it gives us a new perception of the external forms of religion, for example. Now, if they persevere into this process of change, then these forms and rituals will probably become richer more connected to their interior lives and so more fulfilling. And we see this in a slightly different way when young people who start to meditate, who haven't had any religious formation training at all, have no idea of what all this dressing up and walking around on a sanctuary, what all that is about at all. But because of this experience that is beginning to change them, they will begin to see in this ritual something interesting, something that's possibly enriching and helpful to them. So what about non-religious people who don't have this system of symbols, beliefs, rituals that help them to make meaning of life. Non-religious people have the same experience of meditation, but in a different way, but the same experience. And they may find that their meaning systems, everybody has some kind of meaning system in their life, that even if they're not very conscious of it, it may just mean to make money or be successful. But they will, I think, also find that gradually the, their meaning system changes through the experience that meditation leads them to. Their values, which again, they may not have articulated or had time to articulate, most people, if you stop them on the street and say, what are your values, they would you know, give you quite a hodgepodge of, of things. Um, and most of us, even if we have articulated our values, like transparency, honesty, fidelity, truthfulness, under pressure, we're quite ready to suspend those values. Because of special circumstances okay we may have for example as I said yesterday we may have the Christian value the teaching of Jesus to shelter the homeless but if that's not convenient then uh, we suspend that value until the refugee crisis is over or somebody else takes them so we will probably find that there are values, as expressed in real terms, how we spend our time, how we spend our money. They will notice they also that they become more aware, more conscious of their surroundings, environment, and that their relationships, not only their immediate, intimate, personal relationships, but all the relationships of their life, even extending out into the social sphere, where we don't often think we have relationships with the homeless or relationships with uh, people on another continent. But we do, of course. And as this experience of change happens through the practice of meditation, um, we begin to be more conscious of the vast web of relationships that we live in and are part of. And this is happening because the underlying relationship with our self is deepening. We move from an individualistic or nationalistic or racist point of view to an understanding of the human family, of brotherhood and sisterhood. So either for religious or non-religious people, I think the same uh, catalyst for change in meditation is self-knowledge. In Christian understanding, self-knowledge brings us inevitably to the knowledge of God. But this is the kind of knowledge that's not the same as knowing what somebody's email address is, factual, accurate, once and for all kind of knowledge. But this is another kind of knowledge that goes on and on changing, because it becomes less objective at each stage of its life. Non-religious people, of course, may not see it like this at all. But they will, at the same time, be touching the edge of transcendence as this expansion of awareness takes place. By taking the attention off oneself, this brings about a revolutionary change in the individual, and by extension, of course, then in the world that they inhabit. It's when we change that the world changes. Questions become increasingly more important than answers. As a, there was a, a general feeling expressed very widely, anyway, that this uh, referendum campaign in the United Kingdom over belonging to Europe was a very uh, unhappy experience it was very nasty and divisive and everyone you talk to will say you know there wasn't really a proper debate just people shouting at each other and you know all the experts, uh, nobody trusts anybody, so uh, the idea of being having answers thrust at you becomes after a while uh, deeply objectionable, and of course you, you then don 't know where to get good advice. you don't trust anyone so as this uh, change of consciousness takes place, we become increasingly aware of the importance of questions rather than answers. And these questions do not lead us, as, we, as the left hemisphere might think, into uh, ineffectiveness, or non-productivity, or a waste of time. These questions, who am I? is a good example of it, or, what does my existence matter? What difference does my vote make? Uh, These questions become transformative questions, new ways of seeing how we are related to other people, to ourselves, and to reality. What does the sacred mean? Is nothing sacred? What is the scale of values that I'm living in? New patterns of perception form. And the experience of the self pushes us beyond merely individual identity. So the irony is that when we rush around in a loud and objectionably polarized and intolerant sort of campaign, when we rush around impatiently trying to change things or change people's minds, in a way, very little changes. Or because everything changes things get worse. Usually, the more we try and control things, the worse they get. Understanding what is the measure of control we should be applying, how tightly we are holding onto the steering wheel, or how many times we're pressing the button, uh, this is a matter of wisdom rather than just of technique we usually in that state of mind miss what is essential we get obsessed with the secondary things we get diverted the red herrings of political debate you know I'll give you another example i don't want to get too political but uh the uh big red herring in the British, is British referendum is, is Turkey is going to come into the European market and 80 million Turks are going to invade Britain. Okay. You speak to anyone with any knowledge of the political situation, there isn't the slightest chance that Turkey is going to enter into the EU. But it is one of the major, major fears that has been injected into the, into the mind. Nobody knows what effect that's going to have, but, but it's an example how we, when we rush around too much, we cannot see the wood for the trees. We cannot make the distinction between an illusion and the real. And we get stuck on the surface of things. But when we are deeply and truly still, the greatest change happens. That's why John Main so frequently says that the purpose of meditation is to take us deeper. Well, that may sound obvious, but the more you meditate, the more you realize that is exactly what it is doing. And the deeper we go, the more we enter into this transformative stillness. And this is the perennial wisdom of the contemplative tradition that we need to recover today. It's misunderstood, of course. Stillness is identified with stagnation, a stagnant economy, or nothing's happening in my life, I'm bored. I'm not going anywhere. Nothing's happening. Stillness, I've got nowhere to go tonight, makes us feel that we're missing out on something. Everyone else is out having a great time, but we're missing out on something. Or stillness is seen as dropping out of the race, or giving up on the struggle. And, of course, that misunderstanding, when multiplied by millions, uh, creates a culture of burnout and compounded distraction. Compounded distraction. We're all distracted. Human beings have always been distracted. The Desert Fathers thought that distraction was original sin. So we've always been distracted, but compounded distraction is when we become distracted from distraction by distraction. And we now have the technology to have this at the edge of our mouse or our forefinger whenever we like. And it's a state of mind, this distracted state of mind, this compounded distraction, that uh, begins ever earlier in our life cycle. Wisdom traditions see stillness as energizing, as clarifying, and as therapeutic. It heals the divided, the troubled, the sick soul. Stillness creates harmony and balance at the true, quick, living center. That center of all the forces, of all the spheres, of all the energies that make us who we are, our personal ecosystem. Physical, psychological, emotional, intellectual, spiritual, and so on. Nevertheless, we are drawn to extremes. Maybe because they give us a rush, an excitement, a novelty, and the short-lived illusion of an escape, of transcendence, or even of growth. In extremes, we may think we're taking a leap forward into something new. In fact, that's not usually how it happens, as we realize after the effect has worn off. It's a false change for change's sake. And after the rush, we have then to clear up the mess we may have created, the disorder that has taken place in us any kind of extreme, or what can also happen at a young age, or at any age, I suppose, is that you get addicted to extremes. We love the rush, the, whatever it is, the hormones, the chemicals that are released in the brain. We, we, we get addicted to them, to novelty, to illusory promises. So, in a culture like ours, where this balance has obviously been lost, balance doesn't seem a very sexy thing. But it is the true source of what we are seeking. Extremes and failures in our lives simply point back, inevitably, to this ancient wisdom. And that's why I think so many young people today, uh, who have been affected by this more than anyone in a short space of time, why so many young people uh, have an intuitive attraction to this stillness. And if you doubt that, then go to uh, the monastery of Taizé in France, where I'm sure, I think at 12 o'clock. there's the midday prayer, and you'll find several thousand young people uh, drinking the stillness uh, by the liter. <laughs> it's hard work, however, the stillness, if you want to integrate it into your life. But when we commit ourselves to it, it produces the right kind of change at the right speed but we have to take the second step the first step is easy to take it's the second step that puts us in stride that then makes it possible to walk beautiful uh, uh, film about this I think, is a, a film called The Walk, and uh, not for people who suffer from uh, uh, the fear of heights, vertigo. Uh, it's about Philippe Petit, the French uh, tightrope walker who walked. The, oh, the Is it The Wire? The wire yeah. Oh, sorry. Thank you. The Wire. Oh, yeah, The Walk is <laughs> the Camino, I think. The, the Wire, yeah. Have you seen it? Yeah. So. He's he's this crazy, crazy guy, and he admits that he's crazy, who wanted to walk on this wire between the Twin Towers, 1974, I think. And uh, so he did it, and he spent 45 minutes up there. He was was only going to do it once, from one side to the other, but when he got to the other side, he saw the police were waiting for him. (laughs) New York police seemed to be trying to not get him off the wire, but Push him down onto the ground. So then he walked back, and he anyway, he stayed on this wire for 45 minutes in a state of bliss. Total bliss. Total, totally peaceful. And what he says said, and at one point he, he actually lies down, lay down on the wire. Unbelievable. Using his stick, his mantra, that's his mantra, uh, to keep himself balanced. So, anyway, he, he he says at one point that the uh, the first step, putting his, his as he steps off the building and puts his step his foot on the wire, that's uh, easy. But take lifting your second foot off the wire. Uh, sorry, your second foot off the building and putting the second foot on the wire, that is the big step. And he said, that's like leaping into the void. Now, that may not be the best way to encourage people to meditate, (laughs) I agree. (laughs) But uh, it does does give a (laughs) a sense, anyway, of... And I think the important thing in that analogy is a rather extreme metaphor, but uh, is the balance that he found, the stillness that he found, and the total confidence of being in the right place. John Main speaks about meditation helping you to find your insertion point in the universe, the place where you actually belong and fit. And when you're there, you can deal with, I mean, imagine what the winds must have been like up on that hundreds, thousands of feet, whatever it is, up in the sky. And uh, the birds flying around, I don't know. So uh, the stillness is, uh, for him, was a source of of bliss and peace and total at-ease-ness. So I think this is, this is not a bad, um, if extreme, example or illustration of what the contemplative wisdom has spoken about. And maybe it, 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 the, that uh, fear or resistance that he felt in putting his second foot on the wire explains our initial ambivalence about really walking the way of meditation. But once we have done it, once, we, once we're gently, confidently putting one foot in front of the other, day by day, morning and evening, this balance then becomes a source of joy and peace and blissfulness, in fact. Be still and know that I am God. Lao Tzu, a German, uh, sorry, a Chinese uh, philosopher. <laughs> uh, I thinking think of Wittgenstein, but we'll come to Wittgenstein later. <laughs> uh, Lao Tzu, uh, from the, about 500 BC, the same period as the Upanishads and the Buddha and the Hebrew prophets, in the Tao Te Ching, speaks about this, we'll end with these words. Stillness is the ruler of movement, the ruler of haste. Returning to the source is stillness. Peace and quiet govern the world. Harmony is called the eternal. Knowing the eternal is called clarity. Returning to the root is called tranquility. Jesus also points to this stillness as the source of peace and of progress. Set your troubled hearts at rest and banish your fears. Come to me, all you who are burdened and weary, and I will give you rest.